0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of What I Wish i Known, the Google Partners podcast with me, your host, Alex Lankshire. You know, Google has a really well-deserved reputation for being an innovative place to work. And that's really by design. It's not just an innovative place to work. It's an innovative company. And while Google is fond of saying that good ideas can come from anywhere, if you've been to any of their offices, you see that it's baked into the organization. You see it in the spaces. You see it in what's on the walls. You see it in the way that people engage. You even see it on the badges. It's throughout the entire organization. So how does Google do it? How have they been able to create an organization that keeps growing and maintains its innovation edge even as it grows? So today we have a really great guest on our show that's going to help us understand how Google is about Really developing that culture of innovation and ensuring that it thrives and evolves. I'm joined by Frederick Furt, Google's chief innovation evangelist and adjunct professor at Stanford University. Welcome to the Google Podcast, Frederick. Hi, Alex. Excited to be here today, and uh, thanks for having me. We're thrilled to have you too, Frederick. This is a subject I've wanted to do for a long time. But before we begin today's show, Frederick, you know the, the title "Chief Innovation Evangelist." It's a it's a unique title, and I would just like to know what's the journey. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my career has been a lot of exploration and
1: experimentation. You know, I tried many things and learned from those. Pivoted many times. You know, from being you know a, a teacher in. Uh, China, helping students, first graders actually learn English, to um, writing business plans for entrepreneurs in um, South Africa, Cape Town, to being an adjunct professor um, at Stanford University. Also having my own startup, helping, you know, teachers to leverage technology in a better way. So I tried many things. Also, I was a consultant for two weeks um, for one of the (laughs) big consultancies. Uh, I learned a lot in those two weeks. Uh, I'm sure there's a story there. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, for me, it's really interesting that everyone is looking for the next big idea to have impact and, you know, create something meaningful. And my passion is to help people not just to have better ideas, but to act on those ideas with confidence and a little bit of courage. In the past eight years, I tried to codify what makes Google innovative and amplify those elements to develop future ready, you know, everyday innovators. Hmm. What I found was somehow common sense, but at the same time, surprising. And it's not only relevant to Googlers, but I think also to many others around the world who now show interest. And that's why we published some of that on our Google blog and on Rework, our site which hosts a lot of those innovation guides. That's why I'm also teaching it across the world and at Stanford uh, to students and other executives.
0: Yeah, and you know I've seen those and read those blogs, and they're actually super interesting. And so thanks for making those available one of the things which I've heard you say is that you fundamentally believe that creativity exists in all of us. And as somebody who doesn't really consider himself to be that creative, although I think running a business is a a form of creativity, I'd, I'd love to have you share a little bit more at the outset about what you mean by creativity exists in all of us.
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Alex. You know, I truly believe that everyone is creative and has the potential to innovate. For me, creativity is that sort of human superpower. Mm. Everybody has it. The imagination of original ideas, the ability to produce original ideas and unusual ideas, or to just simply make something new, connecting the dots. For me, innovation is a mindset. It's very emotional. So what I'm trying to do in my work is to nudge the behaviors of an innovator, like asking questions, imagining, experimenting, trying things and sometimes breaking rules or breaking your own routines. And most importantly, just being optimistic. So what I want you to do is just follow me with an experiment, a thought experiment I want to do with you for the next you know, half minute. Sure. So I invite you to just close your eyes, okay, my eyes really are quickly. Fantastic. Four plus four equals eight. Three minus one equals two. Five plus four equals ten. Mm -hmm. Five plus one equals six. So, what just happened?
0: Well, you gave me a a number of additions, uh, one of which was incorrect. The uh, five plus four, the last time I checked, I think it's a nine.
1: You're absolutely correct. Yes. And, you know, if your initial thought was that one of those equations is wrong, and and you just, you know, mentioned that, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not alone. That's what's happening with everybody. Our brains are really wired to recognize those mistakes. You know, this, what we call negativity bias, evolved actually for a good reason, to help us survive. However, you know, this built-in aversion to negative outcomes can be an issue when you try to really come up with new ideas. It actually stifles our capacity to innovate.
0: So are you saying that innovation is runs counter to kind of an evolutionary uh, behavior or.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Our brains are basically on autopilot. You know, we, we're trying to really look for the, the negative things, the things which are not working, the things which are incorrect. So what I would recommend is just surround you with people who are, you know, probably more optimistic, who are the believers in like, let's make something happen. Let's try it because everybody is capable of dreaming up great ideas. And as I mentioned, creativity exists in all of us. But capturing that innate creativity requires training, training our minds to think and act in new ways, despite our unconscious avoidance of those negative outcomes.
0: Uh, So, um, Frederick, at the risk of kind of sidelining the, the direction of flow here, but would you so there are people who are natural innovators, right, who we, we've pointed to in the past. And, and of course, the American culture celebrates the innovator. Is there something that's, uh, are, are these people like hardwired optimists or what is it about them specifically that, you know, Thomas Edison, so, you know, hundreds of patents to their name, just constantly thinking of new things. Is, is that a, is that an innate trait to them?
1: Actually, I believe so. Yes, Alex. So the people who have overcome this innate habit tend to be the ones who have acted against all odds and have actually changed the world. Fascinating. Like my job at Google is really to work with a talented community of innovation evangelists to build a culture where all people can pursue innovative ideas, despite the perceived risks. We found actually when people explore new possibilities and experiment with their ideas, their negativity bias actually shrinks and new ideas can
0: actually flourish. And you've measured this? Yes. Well, I'm I'm really eager to hear you unpack this for us. So, Frederick, let me begin. This is the part of the podcast where I get to ask you what you wish you had known or you would tell your younger Frederick self about how to spark innovation and unleash creativity in the workforce. What
1: I wish I would tell my younger self is that we can actually unlearn to be creative. So this is really bad news because as we grow up, our ability to trust our creativity actually shrinks. Really? Let me give you some research um, around that. You know, scientists at NASA actually gave, you know, their rocket scientists and their engineers a creativity test. And this test actually looks at the ability to come up with new, different and innovative ideas to problems. And What they did is they gave that exact test to about 1,600 children between the ages of four and five. And what they found is really surprising. What do you think, what percentage of those children fell into the category of being a genius, a genius in imagination? Mm,
0: I have no idea. Um, 50%.
1: Uh, it's, more, it's more than that. It's actually a full 98%. And amazing. what they to do is they tested more children. So they tested children which were like 10 years old. And that number shrank. It actually were only 30%, which fell into the genius category of imagination. With 15 years, it were 12%. And as adults, only 2%.
0: Wow, that's a that's a pretty steep drop off from the age of five to 10. But only 2% of adults fall into the genius category of imagination. It's remarkable. So and what what causes that? Is that just because we get locked into patterns of thinking? Or is that school and, and rote learning? Or what's the what's the idea behind that?
1: Absolutely, I think it's all of those things, right? Again, it's like our environment, which basically stifles our ability to fully unleash our creativity, But there's also good news, you know, you can practice being more creative. There's two kinds of thinking in the brain. It's, you know, divergent thinking and convergent thinking, you know, the divergent thinking, that's the imagination. It's used basically for generating new possibilities. And then we have the convergent thinking, which we mostly use. That's when you're making a judgment, when you're making a decision, when you're testing something or you're criticizing, you're literally evaluating. So, divergent thinking works like an accelerator, and convergent thinking puts a brake on our best efforts. You know, for individuals, I would recommend just allowing divergent thinking to happen. So, be that five-year-old child again. Think about the question, for example, in how many possible ways can you use a paper straw? That activates our divergent thinking. We're thinking about possibilities, we're thinking about opportunities, and we're generating new ideas. So it's very important that we, you know, activate that divergent thinking.
0: Can you systematize that, Frederick? Is divergent thinking something that can be learned by doing it? So putting yourself through mental exercises that drive that? A, B, uh, can that be done also as a group? So we get a group together in an office environment and say, all right, you know, every day we're going we're gonna to spend five minutes just thinking about problem sets and talking about those problem sets and, and, and opening up the possibilities around those problem sets.
1: You're making a very good point, Alex. Uh, so let's start with a group. Yep. I think, you know, mostly what happens is that divergent thinking basically faces convergent thinking. So, you know, one or two people in your group, they might do divergent thinking, right? They imagine about new possibilities. They think about new ideas. And others are doing the convergent thinking, right? They're criticizing, they're evaluating, they're judging, right? And what happens is you're basically stifling creativity because you're not moving forward. So what I would recommend is just setting a couple of rules so that let's just stay with the divergent thinking for a couple of minutes to generate as many possibilities as possible and then move to convergent thinking, where we actually try to judge and evaluate and you know, maybe test some of the ideas. So it's really important that you set the rules in your team in, around, are you doing divergent thinking or are you doing convergent thinking? The, the second point you were making is also a very interesting one, because our brain is usually on autopilot. Mm-hmm. Our brain's natural desire is for efficiency. It wants literally to save energy. Your brain will naturally seek to feed you just with one option in which to deal with every situation based largely on how it's dealt with the same or similar issue before. But what if we need some new, different solutions? We actually need to get off the autopilot to generate one more different option, one more different solution. And that's what you can actually enable through meditating, um, being just more aware trying to be mindful that you're on autopilot. So your brain feeds you just with one option. And usually we just take that option and we're going to go with it. So just pause for a second and think about another option, another idea, because having multiple options or multiple ideas actually helps you to, you know, eventually have better ones as well. So really, it's interesting that our brain is on autopilot and and we we should get off autopilot
0: more often. You know, I want to explore something here with you. I've always been fascinated about the pairing of minds. Uh, You know, Bryn and Page, uh, Hewlett and Packard, uh, Lennon and McCartney, uh, Wozniak and, and Jobs. I mean, it's this idea that, there's these innovators who have been paired. Do you think that that, and when you, of course, when you read about some of them, they have these interesting, challenging relationships and the personalities are often, you know, quite different. Is that a manifestation of what you're talking about? Where somebody may be pushing the other person towards divergent thinking before they then start to prune?
1: It's interesting that there isn't that Idea of a lone genius, right? So it's really rare that the innovation comes from a single person. It's always a team effort. There's always a team behind the innovation. So it's not that lone genius, which, you know, we want to develop. It's basically we want to develop the teams and help the teams to come up with better ideas together and move forward to test something, experiment, uh, prototype, because innovation is a team effort. It's a team sport. But it's also important that you see yourself as an innovator. Having a mindset where you consider innovation part of your core job is critical. Adopting what researcher Carol Dweck calls a growth mindset, that's the idea that we can grow our brain's capacity to learn and to solve problems, can start a virtuous cycle where by believing you can improve and you can actually improve. At Google, we encourage all of our managers to foster innovation on their teams. It's better to try something new with mixed results than to do the same thing again and again.
0: So do you actually have an OKR uh, related to innovation and, and at, at the team level?
1: Absolutely. Everybody should set a specific goal around innovation for themselves and on the team level and even on the organizational level. So that's very important that you consider innovation as part of your core job.
0: If we think about a, an agency environment, you know, you're working on the, the tasks and projects for the clients, but you're also within an organizational environment. And innovation could happen whether it's you're delivering services or the service delivery aspect to the client, but it, it could also happen on how the organization is structured, even though that might not be within your purview. Are you including all of that mix at Google? Absolutely. We're looking on innovation on an individual level. We're
1: looking at it on a team level, on an organizational level, and from a leadership perspective. So what can you do as a leader to really empower your team to innovate, to build a culture of innovation? And on an individual level, it's really important that, again, you consider innovation as part of your core job. And what's interesting that you know, every human being is basically looking for routines. So basically just stuck in our routines. It gives us safety, and it's it's giving us security. And it saves our brains, again, energy. It just makes us feel good if we have a lot of those routines. But it only helps us to perform on an average or actually below average level. So what I would recommend is actually making a list of all your routines for you individually every day, and then just trying to break those routines. So trying to really get off those routines
0: and trying to explore something new. Uh, so can I, I'm just going to try and tangibilize this a little bit when you talk about because what we're trying to drive at is how can I individually foster innovation and and become somebody who has a bias towards that. And what I hear you saying is it's the individual, it's the team, it's the organization. At the individual level, if you're trying to break routines, is it something as mundane as take a different bus to the office, take a different route to the office, uh, go to a different place for, for my coffee? All of that,
1: and even more. So for me, I'm trying to really you know, live by that principle of breaking my routines every day. So you would never see me staying in the same hotel twice. You would rarely find me in the same restaurant twice. You really see me a lot kind of like engaging with different new people, trying to immerse myself in new experiences, trying new things, because that actually enables you to learn something new, to explore something new. It gets you off your routines, which basically, again, only help us to perform on an average level or actually below average. So if we get out of those routines, we actually can perform better.
0: It's interesting when I'm doing uh, coaching, I'll often ask uh, people to get up in front of a room and speak. And you know, public speaking is one of the biggest fears that people have. And right after they finish giving their elevator pitch or presenting or what have you, you know, I ask them how do they feel, and inevitably they'll say, "I feel really uncomfortable. I don't know through my hands. You know, it was a bit awkward. What have you?" It's at that point that you know I want to point out. That you're outside your comfort zone, and we only grow when we're outside our comfort zone. Our comfort zone exists to keep us from having to think really. And I think what I hear you saying is that you understand where that circle is of your comfort zone, and then and then get outside it. And but doing that at a daily level uh, at all, all aspects of my routine, personal and professional life, because it's that unbalancing that keeps me on edge and keeps me thinking and dealing with the new situations.
1: Absolutely. Yes, that's, that's correct, Alex. Mm. I think you know it's all about curiosity, right? Being an explorer, trying new things, what researchers call recombination, and try to put them together in a in a new way and a new format. And you can only do that by actually exploring new ideas, when you're breaking your routines.
0: So let's, let's drive at this idea, you know, you're talking about, or I've read about psychological safety. And the need for individuals in the organization to feel safe if they bring up an idea, particularly if if I'm here and I'm bringing up an idea which affects another group over there and that uh, the way that affects it, you know, may mean that some people aren't doing what they've been doing in the past. How does an organization create the environment in which ideas, whatever they may be, are surfaced in a way that's respectful and that the individual is not there's no repercussions in a negative way?
1: That's a great question. I think it starts with asking the right questions. You know, we as adults, we barely ask questions because, you know, it just feels not professional asking questions. We always want to lead with an answer, right? With an idea. So for me, innovation, it's not really about the ideas. It's about asking the right questions, finding good problems, and therefore develop a healthy disregard for the impossible. One of my favorite questions is, what if or challenging something by asking why? Why is it that way and why can't it be different? And that's really, really hard to do in a team. Because if you ask a lot of questions in a team, you know, you just might encounter that peers might not be respectful of you asking all of those questions because you know we want to have an answer, we want to have a solution, we want to move forward. So you've sometimes encounter that you probably hold the team back by asking too many questions. But I actually feel that's an ability of an innovator to really ask the right questions and ask more of those questions. So in a team, we need to literally create an environment where people feel safe enough to ask questions, to challenge assumptions, to feel safe enough to take a risk and try to suggest something different and something new.
0: This would fundamentally come down to also an, uh, an issue of managers. A lot of times, it's the managers of staff who embody whether or not this is a safe space or not, and who set the ground rules and enforce them. So does Google do a lot of training for its manager levels to ensure that they are, understand what the rules of the road are and how to create those safe spaces?
1: So leaders can develop a culture of innovation by modeling specific behaviors. It's hard to foster psychological safety and it's very easy for a leader to destroy it. If a leader really wants to encourage innovation, you should start trusting your people. Trust motivates people, control doesn't. So one of the leadership behaviors we really want to see is that leaders trust their people. You know, if you trust your people, They trust themselves even more, and then they have the confidence to experiment, try something different, take a risk. and That comes all back to that notion of psychological safety, where you create an environment where people show up with their full self, they are vulnerable, but they take risks because they feel safe enough that they can come back the next day, even if the project failed, if the service they launched was not successful. They can come back and their bonus is not at risk, their salary is not at risk. Uh, their reputation is not at risk, um, and they feel safe enough to, to do something different.
0: I hear you on this. I want to ask a question. It's maybe an unfair one, but does that not run counter to a culture of accountability? So if the if a leader is to make a decision and the organization moves in that direction as a result of you know, a strategic decision that's born through an innovation idea and it, and it fails... What I hear you saying is, well, you should get up there and and celebrate that we did the innovation. It didn't work out. We accept those failures. I'm going to model the behavior that it's okay to accept the failure. It's okay to try. But in a public company where there's accountability to stockholders, that's one thing. That's a hard thing to do. And in, in a private company, it's a different thing. In an agency, particularly a smaller agency, that type of risk might have some pretty big impacts. So, What's the trade-off between accountability and and innovation and risk-taking?
1: You know, nobody wants to fail. I've never met a person who came to me and said, like, you know, Frederick, I want to make a really big mistake today. And I want to have our project not be successful. Right. What I see people are saying is that they want to take a risk because they want to learn whatever the outcome is. And that also comes back to the incentive system you have in place. How do you recognize and reward the people who take a risk, who try something different and try something new? So maybe you want to consider giving them a bonus at the beginning of the project because you want to reward them for doing something different. And you want to recognize them and saying, you know, thanks for stepping outside of your comfort zone, trying something new, break your routines, and really... I want to acknowledge that and recognize that by giving you a bonus or giving you recognition for that. So you want to nudge people for experimentation.
0: Frederick, I'm going to ask you a tactical question here. And that is, at Google, what are some of the specific things that Google has done? So you've shared nudging behaviors. You've talked about modeling. You've talked about creating the safe spaces. You've talked about creating accountability and goals for individuals to seek innovation or have that bias towards innovation. What are some of the tangible things that Google has done at the individual level to foster this?
1: It's really about three things. It's about having a user focus, respecting the user, thinking 10x, so thinking about the really radical new ideas, and then trying to experiment. We call it be prototype driven. So codifying those three things really helped us to train people in those three specific behaviors. So how can you create a more user focus, trying to understand the people you're designing solutions for? And we give you tools and, and practices to do that. How can you think bigger? How can you think about radical new ideas, those 10x ideas? We train you in doing that. How can you experiment? How can you feel safe enough to try something different, experiment? and learn from that. That's also behavior we um, train people in. Like On their first day, literally coming to Google, we give you some of those practices so that you're starting off right to really you know, have a very clear focus on the user, you know, think about radical new ideas, and then trying to experiment and be prototype-driven. So we're doing like something around training and giving people the tools and the methodologies to practice those specific behaviors. Other things we are trying to do to foster, for example, collaboration, which is very important. As I mentioned, innovation is always a team sport, right? Mm -hmm. We're having a peer bonus system. So that literally means that I can reward somebody else with a small bonus or a small dollar amount if they help me out with something. And that really fosters collaboration. So recognizing people for their help and support is something you can do through a peer bonus system. What's more important than the dollar amount is actually the recognition the person receives. So they receive a notification which goes to their managers and to their peers, recognizing with a quick thank you for what are they helping me accomplish and achieve. So really thinking about your incentive system on an organizational level is really important because then you can nudge the specific behaviors of an innovator. So another example would be related to that notion of developing psychological safety in the team. Mm-hmm. So the idea that teammates feel comfortable taking risks in front of each other, offering a new idea or asking, you know, sometimes a dumb question. It's a climate in which people are comfortable being and expressing themselves. At its core, you know, psychological safety is a paramount in ensuring that teams thrive. How do we do that? We're actually giving teams tools to measure their psych safety, and we put tools in place to help teams and individuals feel more comfortable being and expressing themselves. What we also do is we really value diversity and inclusion because we actually believe that inclusion leads to more and better ideas and eventually fosters innovation. I taught a course around how to foster innovation through inclusion with my friends at Stanford, and we taught that at Google and other places as well. And it's really critical that we really take that notion of inclusion seriously, that we really want to value that diversity, not just the diversity of ideas, but the diversity of backgrounds, the diversity of people who bring those ideas. One interesting story is that at YouTube, we launched a video recording app for iOS. And the next day, the team found that about five to 10% of those videos user uploaded were actually upside down. So were people shooting videos incorrectly? No, actually, our early design was the problem. It was optimized for right-handed users only and didn't account for the unique perspectives of lefties. So we don't have mean-spirited engineers or any, you know, anything's wrong in those teams, but we literally just have right-handed people or had right-handed people on those teams. And we didn't account for left-handed users. So what happened was we unconsciously created an app that worked brilliantly for almost all our right-handed users exclusively. So that helped us really to realize that Diversity and inclusion is truly important if you want to build products for everyone in the world.
0: That's a very interesting story and really illustrates the point perfectly. What would be your your last point uh, with regards to innovation and, and how we can drive it within the organization?
1: Yeah, one last point related to like psych safety, what you can do starting literally today is that you can start your team meeting just differently maybe with sharing a personal failure or a mistake and what you learned from it. So we have been doing that in my team meetings for quite some time. We just open the team meeting in a very different way Then we open it usually with a mindfulness practice and then start sharing across the room what we learned in last week, what mistakes we made and what we learned from those. It just creates another level of safety in the team.
0: So what I'm hearing you say, Frederick, is as a kind of very strategically tactical thing that we can do is begin our meetings with a reveal about some of the challenges or problems or failures that we've had. That doesn't necessarily mean only in the work environment. It can be in the personal environment. I guess you're just trying to say, hey, listen, we all struggle. Uh, We're all human. It's a safe place to share this. And that kind of sets the tone for any other discussion that might come about. And Is that the intention and the practice of it? That's correct, Alex.
1: I would start with probably some work-related challenges you're facing. And then, you know, the next meetings, you can go deeper, right? You can start with a personal mistake or a learning you had in the past. And you can role model that literally as a leader, because that helps the team also to recognize that. It's safe here to share that we're not just success-driven people. We are not just creating those successes over and over again. We also make some mistakes and we also face some challenges. And learning from those mistakes is really important that we share that with each other
0: fascinating. Before we end, uh, Frederick, I want to come right back to something that you said at the beginning, because I I love hearing this stuff. I want to make sure that we land on things that individuals can do on a personal level. And one of the things that I I remember you mentioning earlier on was how we can develop our own practice of innovation and take ourselves out of our own comfort zones. You find that it gets easier over time to do that because there is, there's a certain, appeal to when you're tired or what have you to go with the familiar, you know, I'll have the vanilla ice cream just because I know what it tastes like and I don't want to be bothered. It does it become easier to be in that zone where there's a, there's a constant learning going on because you're constantly in a new environment?
1: Absolutely. For me, it's actually um, addictive. Trying to really have new experiences is truly addictive for me because I really want to explore something new. I want to learn something new. So for me, actually going to the same restaurant causes a lot of anxiety for me because I know what's going to be served. I know how the restaurant um, looks like. You know, I know how the food tastes and so forth. That routine actually makes me nervous. So how can you break your routines and trying to do that more often? And if you do that more often, you probably will get addicted too to really explore something new and be that explorer again. Like children, right? be that five-year-old, because they're exploring over and over again. They're asking questions over and over again. They're trying to really explore what's possible, trying to try out new things and different things. So seeing yourself as an innovator and having a mindset where you consider innovation part of your core job is actually critical as well. And having that growth mindset where you say, like, you can start a virtuous cycle where you believe you can improve and you can actually improve.
0: Frederick, this has been really fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know that you are quite busy to sit down with us and share with our listeners about how Google does innovation and some of the things that you've learned through the process. I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions. So uh, can you point our listeners to any resources that you find are particularly helpful in this area?
1: Absolutely. There's you know, some great resources out there. We just published our innovation guides on our Rework site, so feel free to check those out. I'm also writing on our Google blog around innovation and creativity and experimentation. The section is called Perspectives, so feel free to check that out as well. And you know, I'm sharing um, a lot of those insights, uh, what we learn related to innovation in conferences and in other formats as well, and through my teaching at Stanford University. So there's really no right way to innovate, right? There's only your way to innovate, right? So what I would encourage you to ask yourself is, look at your organization to see how they may be encouraging or discouraging new ideas of doing things. How are your systems and processes in the organization support innovation? You know, I mentioned the peer bonus at Google supports collaboration. How do you foster innovation through inclusion? More diverse perspectives lead always to better and more diverse ideas. Create a diversity. And how does your organization deal with failures? Are you a learning organization? So it's that mostly people think that they need to hire innovative and creative people. But the fact is that everyone is creative. And it depends on our environment if these people can fully unleash their potential. So building an environment where people can thrive is critical.
0: Those are really good points, Frederick. And thank you so much for summarizing them so concisely. Uh, it helps us to focus in on some of the key points that you raised during our discussion. So, so thank you again, Frederick. I really appreciate you being on the show.
1: Thank you, Alex. And uh, see you in the future.
0: Yeah, I look forward to that. And to all of our listeners, thank you again for listening. Uh, if you haven't listened to our previous podcasts, you can find those archived on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Google Play. We encourage you to listen to them. And if you like what you hear, share them out and like them. We appreciate that all the time. And join us for our next episode when we'll ask our guests what they wish they'd known.